This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Today we're going to be doing something really different. We're going to be getting out of the studio, and we're going to go exploring the Trace Rios wetlands in Phoenix, Arizona. These wetlands are formed where the Salt River, Gila River, and the Alafrio River join together, and they make a home for native plant and animal species. We'll be joining a group of biologists from the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, along with visitors from the local community, they'll be heading out on several different hikes to explore and learn about the wetlands, along with many of the plants and animals that live there. Now this should be a fun trip, and who knows, we might just find a new plant or animal species while we're out exploring. First we have to drive about 30 miles west of ASU to get to the site and talk with some of the people that will be exploring the wetlands. Oh, as a special guest, later in the show we'll be talking with Quentin Wheeler, who's Vice President and the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and also the director of a new center at Arizona State University called the International Institute for Species Exploration. Dr. Wheeler is an internationally known expert on beetles. We'll have a chance to learn more about the Institute and to answer this question. What does a beetle have in common with Darth Vader? So now, let's get going and let's start exploring. Well, we turned off the main road and we're approaching the parking lot for the wetlands. Uh, it looks like there's a parking spot right here. So we should be able to get started in just one moment. I'm walking up to the wetlands and I have to stop for a moment because I'm looking at these giant trees. They're least, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 feet in height, and they're uh, looking like old cottonwoods or cottonwoods that have been damaged by fire. But instead of being useless, they're now home to what look like herons, either gray or blue herons. These are really big birds. They have wingspans up to five feet. And these nests, there's, oh, a half dozen nests, the uh, young herons are being raised there. You can see the chick's head's bobbing up and down periodically when mom or dad are feeding them. I'd let you hear them, but I think they're too far in the distance to pick up the recording. Right now, I think I'll head on towards the wetlands. A little more walking, and I've ended up at the wetlands themselves. Uh, we've got these tall reeds. They must be maybe 10 feet tall. They look like they might be cattails. We'll find out later. And uh, we've got lots of birds flying around and singing in the background and calling. And as I walk a little further, I keep seeing this looks like dander or little feathers of the birds. And there's just so much of it. Then it dawns on me as I look up, there's a giant grove of cottonwood trees. And I'm going to bet that those are the seeds that come from the cottonwood trees. And those are the ones that can float around and that's how they travel from place to place to be able to get planted in soil that's away from the other trees which is really important. Oh, it looks like maybe we have possibly Pierre de Viche here. He's running away from me. I can see him running. <laughs> Hello Pierre. Doing? I'm doing very well. I was just talking about you. Yeah, okay. yeah. it can be good. Yeah, yes, it has to be good. We were looking at the, the large blackbird. Yes, these are red-winged blackbirds. Yeah. 
Beautiful birds. Yeah, it's a very, very common species in this kind of habitat. They really like to breed in reeds, no, reed beds, things like that. And you often see them uh, also like in big fields, no, alfalfa and this kind of thing. So, yeah, they're really uh, gearing up to breed. So they're very active singing and very vocal right now. Very conspicuous too. Very much so, very yeah. much so. They've got like two little uh, red patches on the, on the shoulders. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them when they're displaying, no, they'll sort of sit on like a tall branch or something like that and they sort of open their wings like that and they do this no, vocal behavior and these little patches become i mean very very conspicuous yeah. very they sort of open them up they sort of puff up kind of thing so they're probably using that to establish territory yeah yeah it's like a social signal yeah and, and fem- females just find that irresistible i'm gonna let pierre de Viche continue on with his bird watching we actually had Pierre on in an earlier broadcast of Ask a Biologist, and if you'd like to listen to more about birds and bird songs, just go to the podcast page on Ask a Biologist. Right now, I see Jim Elzer in the distance. He's brought an important tool for looking at different species. I want to talk to him about that. I'm here with Jim Elzer. Remember that tool I said he brought? Well, he's brought some microscopes so we can see what's inside the water in the wetlands, which you're going to find out has more living things in it than we could ever see without this tool. Let me tell you just a little bit about Jim Elzer. He's a biologist that studies bodies of water that are inland, you know, like lakes and streams. And those kinds of biologists are called limnologists, correct? Well, that's right. So most people know what oceanographers are, and we have an oceanographer here, Dr. Suzanne Neuer, and everyone knows what an oceanographer is, but hardly anyone knows what a limnologist is, and a limnologist is essentially a freshwater oceanographer. So if there's water inland on the continents, then limnologists want to study it, whether it's moving in a stream or a river or whether it's standing in a pond or a lake, and that's, uh, that's what limnologists study. One of the things I want to talk about before we get into some of the details Species in general. We're going to have a new center coming along. Do you think we could discover a new species here? Oh, undoubtedly, microorganisms are the best place to look for new species. They're just being discovered constantly as people have developed the proper techniques for telling one kind of microorganism from another. Because very often, they look very similar because they're so small and their cells kind of look the same, especially bacteria. But now that we can look at the DNA and figure out who's really related to who and how different things are, now they're finding so many different species of bacteria. It's really quite amazing. We haven't even begun the process of describing all the bacterial species on Earth. So in a drop of water in something like the wetlands here, uh, about how many living things do we have in it? Oh, that's a phenomenally large number. A drop of water is about a milliliter, about a thousandth of a liter. And in a drop of water of that size, you would have a thousand algae of the kind we're looking at, easily a thousand, maybe five thousand. And even more amazing, you might have a million bacteria. A million, a million bacteria. Wow. And it, it, what the population in uh, Phoenix area is what, maybe about two million? That's right. So two drops of water, we have more bacteria than all the people in Phoenix. That's right. That's, a, that's, very, that's very impressive, also uh, very scary almost. Well, then let me tell you another number. So if we were to count the viruses, in all drops of water also have viral particles in them, and most of them are harmless. Maybe not the ones here at the water treatment plant, but uh, mostly in any natural body of water, the ocean or lakes, there's also viruses, and there are a billion viral particles in every drop of water. 
So let's talk a little bit about bacteria because we, we talked about a drop of water and we had this really nice analogy of how much you can find in it. But a lot of people think of bacteria and, and viruses, everything is being really bad. There's good bacteria, right? Absolutely. Most bacteria are harmless to people, and many have very important uh, and helpful functions, especially here at the wastewater treatment plant, where essentially what the people who work here and have engineered it in such a way that the bacteria are here to clean the water. We usually think about bacteria making water dirty, <laughs> but here the bacteria actually clean the water by processes that remove uh, chemicals that are uh, harmful to the environment and release them back to the atmosphere, like nitrogen especially. Now, let's get back to that drop of water. What are we going to be seeing inside of this water? Well, that's the amazing thing about a drop of water. You can spend your entire life trying to understand what happens in a drop of water. What we'll see in there, again, are these photosynthetic algae that are fixing carbon dioxide from the air and making sugars uh, to use for their growth. They also will take up all the other nutrients that they need from the water and grow and reproduce. In that drop of water will be bacteria, and those bacteria are in there. They're using sugars that are made by the algae to, for their own growth, and they also are breaking down uh, compounds, organic compounds that are in the water, releasing nutrients, and then the algae then take those up and use them for growth. So in a drop of water, you have a complete cycle of nutrients from algae to bacteria to the water back to the algae. That's really quite amazing. There's also a little food web in there. If you can see in there, swimming around, there'll be single-celled proteists that swim around and eat the bacteria and eat small algae themselves. And so there's a little uh, food web in there. You can almost think of these single-celled proteists being sort of like antelopes running around in Africa eating the grass. And then there'll, there'll be things in there that eat those proteists. Uh, that whole thing that oceanographers will now just call that thing uh, process by which bacteria and small algae are eaten by proteins, which are eaten by larger protozoans, which are eaten by the larger animals. They call that the microbial loop. Well, as you can imagine, we could spend our entire visit here just looking at a drop of water. But I see someone else here that could probably answer that question I had earlier about the floating material, you know, the stuff that looked like bird feathers. I think she'll probably have the answer, so let's head on over that way. So I've been able to catch up with Liz Makings, who's a researcher at Arizona State University, and she's actually in the herbarium, which is a really cool collection of plant species. It's been going on for quite a while, so I'm going to ask Liz a little bit about the herbarium at ASU. <laughs> well, the herbarium is a collection of dried and mounted specimens with label information on when it was collected and where, and we have about 260,000 specimens right now, and they're mainly from the southwest and northern Mexico. We have a really good collection of cacti and uh, representative plants in arid regions. 260,000 specimens. That's, that's just unbelievable. Now we're out here at the wetlands, and there are just some amazing plants. For example, in the actual water here, there are these giant reeds. What are these? Yeah, there's uh, what appears to be just a big old homogeneous set of plants, but actually if you look closer, there's a, there's a lot of different things in there. You've got some cattails, um, you've got some bulrush, you've got some chairmaker's rush, and a lot of other wetland plants that are a lot smaller, but the cattail definitely dominates. It's really big. It's Apparently this place was burned about a year ago, and they've already grown back well over my head. I'd have to say they're at least 10 feet tall. 
And when you talked about homogeneous, just to make it clear, that means same species, or in, in other words, it looks like it's just a bunch of cattails, but in, in reality, there are a lot of different plants that are in there. That's right. You know, diversity is, is really important in a place like this because the more diverse a place is, the, the better habitat it tends to be for animals and the, the little, tiny little microscopic plants and animals that depend on the bigger things. Uh, earlier, I noticed all this it looked like downy feathers right around the shoreline, and then all of a sudden I realized that man, that'd be an awful lot of birds there. And uh, then I looked up at these giant trees, and I bet you can tell us a little bit about that downy material. Well, the downy material this time of year is coming from the cottonwoods, which are the the main tree that you see around here. And cottonwoods, the female trees, produce a little seed, and then they have this little silky feathery thing that helps the seed float around in the air and find a new place to land. So what you're seeing is basically the cottonwood seeds flying all over the place. The other thing I wanted to mention, if someone would like to make their own herbarium, they can just go to Ask a Biologist. We have a really neat article on Les Landrum, who is the herbarium curator. It's called Smashing Success. Or you can just go to Google and enter the words Ask a Biologist and put in the word herbarium, and that'll take you directly to this fully illustrated guide to how to make your own herbarium. And this is actually something you can do with very little money. You can give us a little details, right, Liz? Yeah, it's, it's really easy. You just need some plywood and you need some newspaper. You should probably have a, a little journal to take some notes about what you're collecting. And you want to make them as flat as you can because uh, that makes it a lot easier to store. And the mounting process is not really that difficult either. You basically just need some Elmer's glue, some archival paper, and you got an herbarium specimen. Well, Liz, I want to thank you for spending a little time with us. You're welcome. <laughs> After a little more walking, I've caught up with one of the groups that's hiking, and it looks like they might have Suzanne Neuer and Ron Rutowski, two professors in the School of Life Sciences, and they're talking to the group, and let's listen in. No, we haven't. We're none of us are scum people. Oh, you want to talk about yeah. the scum? Yeah, so, you know, what looks like this yucky scum, these, most of these are filamentous algae that are actually very tiny, tiny cells, but because many of them are stuck together in filaments, and then there are the filaments are together in tufts, you can actually see these microscopic organisms. There are, like, plants on land. There are algae that make photosynthesis, and there's a whole food web in there, so little crustaceans, little ciliates, unicellular, multicellular animals that feed on these algae. And these algae are extremely important because they take up a lot of the nitrates which are in the water and convert it into their own biomass. And then there's lots of bacteria in there that also convert the nitrogen and actually some degrade the nitrogen and into back into molecular nitrogen that goes back into the air. So there's an extremely important microbial ecosystem in here and we've talked about numbers before so there's um, in each drop of water there's maybe a thousand algae a million bacteria so an enormous amount of organisms in a, in a very small volume of water but extremely important for the ecosystem here so it serves as a tremendous base for these wonderful insect populations that yeah. we have <laughs> so <here. it> comes. <laughs> because the bacteria the microorganisms get eaten by uh, the larvae of mosquitoes and gnats and other small flies, such as this, these dragonflies that you'll see. And so this dragonfly 
is the adult stage uh, that's aerial out flying around. The larval stages actually live in the water and feed on uh, s other small insects and organisms uh, as predators. They have these huge jaws, huge eyes. If we could get down in here with a net and scoop around, we'd no doubt come up with some of them. But they come up to the, they crawl up the reeds and then they do their last molt and out comes a dragonfly. They expand and harden the wings. And so this is the adult stage, which is the one that is uh, responsible for the reproductive activities, mating, laying eggs. And this is probably this blue one, which you can see through the scope. Is he still there? Good. <laughs> he, uh, he's, uh, he's probably defending a territory. He's probably sitting here waiting, uh, keeping other males away in the hopes that a uh, female will come by and he'll have exclusive access to it. Pardon? You know that this is a male? Uh, yeah, because of the coloration. Females are not so brightly colored in this species. So, so the male has his, you can see he's got his ab, is he still there? Yeah. Okay, good. He's got, he's got his, yeah. Well, I've been able to catch up with Quentin Wheeler, and I promised that we'd have him later on in the show. He's our special guest scientist. Uh, Quentin is actually a professor in the School of Life Sciences, and also he's an entomologist, which, if you don't know what that is, that's a person who likes to study insects. And his favorite insects are beetles. We're going to get to learn a little bit more about that. Quentin, I want to thank you for joining us here at the Trace Rios Wetlands to talk to us about your interest in beetles. Oh, my pleasure. Now, one of the things I have to mention, we're, we're sitting here at the wetlands, and it's a beautiful place. Quentin's sitting here with his cowboy boots, and a lot of people might think that, well, you're in the Arizona desert, everybody walks around in cowboy boots, but that's not really true. Uh, that's not the normal apparel that someone wears on their feet. But in this case, Quentin is an explorer, and he's someone that actually fits really well with the realm of cowboy boots because he's got that pioneering spirit. And we'll get to learn about an institute he's starting but before we do that, what got you interested in studying beetles? Well, it was when I went to college. I took an entomology class, fell in love with uh, insects, and just naturally gravitated toward beetles. They're so diverse in their habits and their appearance. Uh, they're absolutely fascinating to study. They're just really cool-looking creatures. Are there some that you like more than others? Well, of course. Uh, there are about half a million described beetles, so there are plenty to choose from. And while it's difficult to choose... I'd have to say my favorite is a genus called Eliotes. And if you go out into the Sonoran Desert around Phoenix, it's actually one of the most common insects you'll encounter. They're large size, they're black, they're flightless. And if you approach them, their only defense is to secrete some noxious chemicals. So they actually do a headstand, put their head down, their rear end straight up in the air, and then exude or sometimes even squirt uh, defensive chemicals out. Well, that must be quite a sight. So this is your favorite beetle. I wanted to know, early on we mentioned in the program that you might answer a question. What does a beetle have in common with Darth Vader? You have the answer. Well, yes, I do. One of my former students, Dr. Kelly Miller, now at the University of New Mexico, and I were naming a number of new species of slime mold beetles. And one that caught our attention in particular was a flightless species, nearly blind. Its eyes are reduced to just a few facets on the front of the head. So if you look down on the top of the head, it looks very shiny like a helmet, no visible eyes, just this little slit across the front. And it reminded us very much of the Darth Vader helmet. What is the actual name? The scientific name is Agathidium Vaderi. Agathidium Vaderi. This is cool. So 
let me get this straight. You discover a new species and you get to name it? That's so cool. It is cool. Uh, It's one of the many privileges of exploring for species. There are international rules you have to adhere to, but within broad parameters, you get to, uh, to choose any name you like for the new ones. You must have some other interesting names you've picked. Well, that study I referred to of the slimo beetles, we actually described 65 new species and named them. And among some of the names we came up with were what are called patronyms, names in honor of humans. And we chose President Bush and Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. So there are now Agathidium, Bushi, Cheneyi, and Rumsfeldi. This is so great. Let me add uh, an interesting side note. A few months after word of Agathidium bushi hitting the popular press, it was getting a lot of conversation among reporters and so forth. And one day I received a phone call from the White House, and I was thinking it would be their news office asking, what's a slime mole beetle and you know what's all this press coverage? But instead, a lovely female voice said, Professor Wheeler, and I said, yes. She said, please hold for the president. And uh, sitting there for a few moments wondering uh, what friend is playing a prank, the next voice I heard was President Bush, and we had a lovely conversation for about five minutes, and he thanked me for the honor of having an insect named after him. I dare say it's one of the few times that beetles have surfaced as an issue in the Oval Office. That's, that's really pretty cool. Uh, you've started a new institute. It's called the International Institute for Species Exploration, which is a mouthful. But the easy way to remember it is you're going to be able to go to species.asu.edu to get to the website. Can you tell me just a little bit about the Institute? Yes, we're going to try to do a couple things. First, we're going to build partnerships with museums, with uh, experts on various groups of plants and animals around the world, with other universities, with botanical gardens, and try to accelerate the process of species exploration, of discovering, describing, and classifying the world's species. And to facilitate this work, we're also cooperating with computer scientists and engineers, with philosophers, with historians, to try to better understand the process of species exploration and invent a whole new generation of tools that will enable people to work much faster. Today at the wetlands, we've also had a chance to talk to people about species, and we've been on our own little quest to find our own species. And we've asked them if they thought they would find a new species or if there are new species here to be found. What would your answer be to them? I would say unquestionably so. Uh, Species, probably quite a few of them representing quite different groups. And I might categorize new species in two ways. First, species totally new to science. No humans ever knowingly seen before. I dare say there are lots of them here from uh, whether they be microbes or uh, small insects. I'm, I'm quite confident we could, if we looked hard enough, find some new ones. But in addition... Uh, Because of human activities around the world, there are introductions of species into places where they didn't naturally occur. And if you do extensive collecting, you'll undoubtedly uncover some of those as well. How many species are there, and how many do you think there are still left to discover? Those are difficult questions. In fact, we're in the process of compiling a catalog of all the species that have been discovered and described in the past. We've been keeping track of these things since 1758. And our best guess is there are about 1.7 million named species to date of all plants and animals. Estimates of how many remain to be described vary from 10 million to 100 million or more. And it shows you how little we actually know about their species, that we can't tell you which of those numbers is closer to the truth. The new institute, what is it going to be doing and what kind of impact will it have on biology in general? 
Well, what we would like to see is a few years from now a much better sense of what species do exist on Earth. And if you think about it, all the complex ecosystems that provide necessary services to us are comprised of unique kinds of living things, of species. And in order to understand the evolution of life on our planet over several billion years, also the key are the species that are the individual elements whose relationships you're trying to reconstruct. So if we can get enough understanding of the species on Earth, then we start to be able to look at these emerging complexity in evolution and in the environment in a much more precise way than we can today. Okay, so for the scientists, I can see lots of really cool things going on. What about for the public? I know there are plans for some really fun things you could do at the Institute, this virtual institute that actually brings all these centers together from all around the world. Right. Well, we're hoping in a few years to have a new generation of electronic tools that link the world's museums and botanical gardens so that one could actually go on a tour of the full diversity of life on the planet, pulling up specimens, examining them. And ultimately, we'd like to see websites where anyone could go visit any species they find to an interesting and useful level. So I could go to this site, and I would be able to go in there, and if I'm interested in beetles and I want to learn more about them, I could go to learn about beetles in Australia, or I could be in the deserts of Arizona, and I could actually compare them, and I could see really wonderful pictures. That's the vision. And obviously in partnership with many scientists and curators and museums and lots of specialists around the world in cooperation, the Institute alone is a catalyst to create some of these tools to make them openly available to the community, but largely to work through the partnership using the expertise that exists around the world to improve our knowledge. I can't wait. I can't wait. I always ask the scientists that come on the Ask a Biologist program, I have three questions, and one you've kind of answered, but it was more when you were interested in, in beetles and insects in, in general. What I want to know is when did you first know you wanted to be a scientist? Uh, as far back as I can remember, some of my earliest memories in childhood are playing with little toy model dinosaurs and uh, imagining going on expeditions digging for fossils. From that, progressed through much of my youth actually studying protozoa, single-celled animals, in, uh, in fresh water. Even then, I didn't realize it, but I was being a taxonomist. I was exploring, I was looking for species that I had not seen before, and uh, so it's really that same excitement that I carry for beetles today, that urge to go out and find that next one that no one's ever seen. You use the word taxonomist, and uh, that brings up the word taxonomy, which is an important term. We have to not only find the species, but we have to classify them. We have to figure out if one's different from the other. Uh, this has been going on for quite a while, and actually there's a real important birthday coming up soon, right? That's right. It was a Swedish naturalist, Caroline Linnaeus, who invented what we consider to be modern techniques of classification and the system we use to give names to plants and animals. He worked in the middle of the 18th century, and uh, this is the 300th anniversary of his birth this year. 300 years. Wow. The other question I always like to know is, and this sometimes tells me more about you than anything else, what would you be if you couldn't be a biologist or a scientist? Well, I would give up this career fighting. It wouldn't, uh, would, wouldn't be easy, but I suppose if I had to do something else, a couple things come to mind. One might be a historian. I'm just fascinated by understanding the present by coming to piece together uh, evidence from the past. 
and that's actually what I do with beetles. I'm trying to reconstruct their history, but it would be equally intriguing to reconstruct human history or other kinds of history. The other alternative would be furniture making. A hobby of mine for several years has been building reproductions of 18th century American furniture, and there's a kind of sense of connection with the past there as well in terms of the beautiful designs of that period of time and then just the satisfaction of working with your hands and creating something. I have to agree. That's something I would actually get interested in. And All right, I have one last question. What advice do you have for anyone that would like to get into a career in science, and in particular biology? Well, I would say follow your instincts. Find what is fun, what gives you passion in terms of asking questions about the world, and then follow that. In my experience, I've trained a generation of young entomologists who were given advice that it would be almost impossible to find a job in this narrow field. But each of them brought so much passion and commitment that every single one has ended up with a job. And so my advice has always been, go with your instincts, and if you follow that, uh, you'll succeed. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, Quentin Wheeler. This has been wonderful. I know the students will enjoy not only listening to this, but coming to your new institute on the web at species.asu.edu. And I'll look forward to meeting them there. Oh, I have one more question. I'm hoping that once the institute is open and has been running for a little while, you'll come back on the program and tell us how it's going. I would love to do that. Thanks. You've been listening to a special episode of Ask a Biologist. We've been exploring the Trace Rios wetlands, and we've been learning about plant and animal species. We've had a chance to talk to several of the biologists from the School of Life Sciences and our special guest scientist, Quentin Wheeler, who's starting a brand new institute. It's called the International Institute for Species Exploration. You'll be able to find it on the web. It's at species.asu.edu. And even though our broadcast is not live, you can still send us your questions by using our companion website. It's askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.